Welcome back to Pick Up the Phone. I'm Camelia, and today we have a caller on the line, our desk chair expert of the week. Who are we speaking with? Hey, uh, I'm Maruf. And Maruf, how do we know each other? It's a great question. I feel. <laughs> um, You're like, actually, who are you? Yeah, who are you, Camelia? Like, why do you know me? Honestly, I wonder. Like, we're the kind of friends where sometimes I'm like, how do we end up friends? Do you know what I mean? I think so. It's like... We were both student leaders at the same time, which is like... I hate the phrase student leader. I hate that you said that. I really hate it too, but like, that's how we know each other. Most of our life has been in front of a Zoom camera. Um, Yeah, that's how we know each other. Do you remember the first time we met? Because I know we met on a Zoom call, but I don't remember what what the first time was. But what was your first impression of me? Uh, And then I'll do you. You had a lot of energy, I think. fuck you make me sound so annoying (laughs) no it was just like Like a little hamster no i think that was just a weird time for everyone and everyone was just like amped up with energy yeah i feel like that's uh, i actually i'm making fun of you but that is actually how i did feel especially because having to like represent a large body of people at that Mm -hmm. time uh, who were all like really going through Mm -hmm. it we were all just like all right i gotta really i gotta get it together and and be good (laughs) what did you think of me the first time you met me whenever that was I thought you like really knew your stuff because you sound very confident and very like knowledgeable basically about whatever you talk about I I think that's just how your voice comes off but like I was really new to this also like I wasn't I didn't do anything um with like advocacy or student government or anything before I had this role but you have been doing this stuff for I guess a few years like you knew what was up I didn't know how any changes got made or where the power was and you were just like all right we do this and this and this and I was like oh okay this is Camelia please pick up the phone what was your student leader role what was yours first I don't want to say the whole title because that's annoying, but basically I was a representative of undergraduates at my college. So I represented the students to the administration. Yeah, I was the grad senate president. So you got to call yourself president. I mean, I never really did, but the whole power structure and titles, it's just. So that's why you ran for president? Because you're like anti-establishment? No, I'm just like, things need to get done. It's a weird time in the world. No one else seems to want to do it and I trusted myself enough to do it. See, I had the opposite experience because I applied and interviewed for my role before, you know, the pandemic happened. So I thought I was going to be representative in a normal school year and have a great time hanging out with students in person. (laughs) And then I got the role and then the pandemic happened. No, I I fully knew it. Uh, we were what we were a month into the pandemic, and things were hitting the fan everywhere. And I was like, "Well, I'm crazy enough to do this. No one's gonna get a vaccine for at least nine months." And I was like, "Yep, time to do it." Did you have different thoughts about the pandemic because you worked in biomed? Once we knew that the virus escaped the cruise ship, it was gonna get really bad really quickly. Did I anticipate two years of this? No. Did I anticipate like six months to a year where we're just in like, what a weird world we're going to live in? Yeah, I anticipated some of that. Misinformation spreading. I mean, we kind of knew that was happening, but to the level that it happened, didn't see that one coming. 
In terms of like biomedical and vaccine development, I'm actually incredibly impressed with what we did as like a country, nation, and group of people. You know, okay, so like nerding out a bit, going into the biomed and science and everything, vaccines take a long time to develop. Like it's 15 to 20 years of everything just working correctly. In a span of like eight to 12 months or so, the United States alone has like three good vaccine candidates all for COVID-19. If you add what's happened to the rest of the world, the British have one, the AstraZeneca one, the Chinese have a few of them. I think the Japanese have one and we'll even mention the Russians, even though I don't really know (laughs) how they validated theirs. I'll put vaccine in quotes. Yeah, I'll put vaccine in quotes for like, you know, the Chinese and Russian ones. But, you know, there's there's a handful of good vaccine candidates that have come out in, you know, a rapid amount of time and that's just never happened. And I think it goes to show what we can do very quickly if we all work together as like a global effort. Additionally, if you look at what's happened with like rapid testing, within like six to seven months, you have universities setting up rapid testing centers, you have company coming up with, or not rapid testing, but like the PCR tests. Mm -hmm. Everyone is doing like the in-house stuff. You have companies coming out with like 20 minute uh, nasal swab tests and just the diagnostic being developed that quickly and it being 90 plus percent accurate all again within a six to seven month time span, I I think that's pretty impressive if you look at like the history of medicine. So there's, I think, a good bit to be optimistic about. Um, My pessimism comes in and um, will we be this focused on like everything else? And I don't see that happening, unfortunately. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was going to ask you next. So you think we were able to speed up time to the vaccine actually being in use by people just because the entire world stopped and everybody was concentrated on the same thing? Oh, absolutely. So you you don't anticipate any sort of increased speed in production for antidotes or vaccines or or just research in the future? No, I mean, I hate being that pessimistic about it, but no. No, that's fair. I mean, the mm-hmm. COVID is definitely like a sort of singular experience. And it's like almost like you can't even focus on other research. Yeah, life. yeah. And I mean, you can't forget research. You can't just focus on life until this thing gets sorted. You had just swaths of people dying um, just because they contracted the coronavirus. Um, we don't really see that happening with pick your favorite disease, unfortunately. Like cancer has been around. Uh, heart disease is even worse, but we're not focused on finding newer drugs for any anything else, really. What do you think you're going to remember most from the early pandemic days? Early pandemic days. Uh, some people were weirdly excited for being at home. Yes, I remember that too. People were like, wow, I finally get to rest. And the pandemic has reminded me that I need to take time for myself. Yes, like to every emotion you can experience, <laughs> I think was experienced in like the first three months. From like happiness, anger, sadness, right. agitation, you name it. It was all experienced. Like, I think the weirdest one was like, someone was taking a picture I saw of the Himalayan mountains and it's usually covered in smog or something. And like, oh, we can see the mountains from this far away because no one's driving a plane or bus or whatever anymore. Look, we fixed global warming was like the tweet. And I'm like, this is not fixing global warming. But On the low, though, 
I'm kind of convinced, I'm probably going to cut this out because this will make me sound crazy, but I'm kind of convinced that Mother Nature made the pandemic because she needed to punish us for what we've been doing. I mean, we're back to doing it right now. I know. She tried her hardest. Okay, you're a PhD candidate. And can you tell everyone, yeah, like what you're getting your PhD in? Sure. So maybe I'll start with like my entire educational background. So I'm a PhD candidate at Virginia Tech. I work at the Freeland Biomedical Research Institute. Woohoo! And um, for simplicity, wait, did you ask a question? No, sorry, I just said woohoo really quietly. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but and for simplicity of this podcast, I study blood vessels. But moreover, I did my undergrad in biology and neuroscience uh, at Georgia State. Then I did my master's in molecular genetics and biochem also at Georgia State. I worked a little bit at Emory University's rehabilitation hospital as a research assistant, studying people with stroke and MS. So it's I guess if you look at my resume, it's like 10 plus years of science. Mm-hmm. So that's where like my knowledge comes from. Were you interested in science in high school? Um, yeah, pretty early on. I think as early as middle school, I saw myself doing it. Um, I don't know where that moment came from. We'll just credit Bill Nye, I guess. But I, I don't exactly have like a defining moment of, oh, I know I want to do science. Um, no, I think that's normal. To not have this light bulb. I will say, I noticed a drop-off, and this all speaks to maybe, like, the education system. Tenth grade chemistry is, like, this weird drop-off where I think you know you're going to do okay in science versus not okay in science. And it's particularly stoichiometry. Like, if you don't get that in the first week, you're just not going to last. You're talking to me. <laughs> That's the person you're describing. I think it's true. Like, you just notice this drop-off of, like, all right, you don't get stoichiometry in two weeks. Time to pick a new career path. (laughs) I feel like people always say everyone's good at one of the like three major sciences that we have to take growing up. So everyone's either a chem person, physics, or biology. Mm -hmm. And I'm just none of the three. I'm so bad at all of them, which I always thought was funny because I'm good at math. No, but you're good at computer science. Computer science is not really science. I I don't know why it's called computer science. Yeah, but like I can't code to save my life. Right. I'm not saying that I have like no skills. I just think it's funny that that somehow I couldn't get chem, bio or physics. I'm like worse than I should be for someone who knows math. So in between your master's and PhD, how many years were there? There were three years in there. Was that when you were at Emory or did you do anything else? Yeah. So that's the, the vast majority of the time I was at Emory and that's where I was a research coordinator there. And I also spent a small amount of time, maybe six or seven months or so working at a, this is a biologics company. What was your experience going from university research and academia to industry? Completely different. Um, Also, I will will qualify this. Uh, The position I had in like the biologics company Pretty much, I wasn't like the lowest tier person there, but I was like one step above that. Until I maybe moved up like two more steps, um, it's a lot of you are told to do this exact thing. It was paid okay. Whereas like, I feel like if you work in academia, even if you have a job in academia, there is no real clock out time in my opinion. Right. You kind of always take it home with you. Yep. Did you want to get a PhD the whole time or what made you want to come back? Okay. (laughs) No. No, I've been fortunate to surround myself in a lot of people with a lot of people that uh, think, I guess, highly of me. So I remember like an undergrad and even masters, everyone was like, you'll get a PhD or MD. 
And I'm like, I don't know. And I was very opposed to getting a PhD for like the longest time. And now when they see me, they're like, what are you doing now? And I'm like, I'm in a PhD. So <laughs> they were like, we told you so. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, sorry for living up to your expectations. <laughs> you know, to add on to that, I, I really wasn't a fan of graduate school because especially a PhD, because you can very easily put yourself in a precarious situation and your life is actually worse than when you started off. Yeah, okay, explain that a little more. Unlike undergrad, graduate school is dictated by how well you do in your research at the very end of the day. And I'm speaking with a very heavy STEM focus. So an undergrad, you take 120, 130 credit hours worth of classes, you do well in all of them, you get a bachelor's degree. That's like kind of the crux of an undergrad. Sure, there's undergrad research. Yeah, but you don't need that. Yeah, I guess. exactly. You don't need that. You passed your 120, 30 credit hours of courses. You get basically a C in all of them. Let's, you know, aim very low here. And you get a bachelor's degree. For graduate school, grades don't matter. You're only, um, and I think good programs, you're in class for maybe one to two years at most. My program was one year. And then you're doing research. And research is very nebulous because at the end of the day, you have to discover something in the time that you're there. And if you don't discover something, you delay graduation over and over and over and over. So theoretically, you know, the national average for a biomedical PhD is five and a half years. Uh, And I'll put, I'll bold in italics the word average, five and a half years. Um, This clearly means that half of the people take longer and a very small amount of people, unfortunately, Uh, take a bit shorter than that. But moreover, your life is dictated by what your research advisor and your committee think of you and your research progress and your ability to discover something. So it's it's a lot of self-motivation that's needed. You know, if an individual doesn't have that, it's a recipe for, for failure, in my opinion. I'm not saying that people aren't capable of it, but it's like people talk about a PhD and MD a law degree, a business degree, like there is just an extra something you have to have. And, and there, um, it can be difficult, I think, to even feel like you're able to get that. But I guess it makes sense in some ways that the bar is high because that's why not everyone is just getting a PhD. Actually, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, I think you ask a good question. Um, if, is it a good thing or not? So I think anyone's capable and and everyone is definitely able to get a PhD. What I can tell you is when I was 22, I definitely was not able to get a PhD. I started my program when I was 27. So maybe you just need a little bit of time to like get the additional training and then do it. I don't want to say I'm doing very well in my program, but I'm doing a lot better than what I would have done when I was 22. I, I think to think about it philosophically, If you're getting a PhD, you are becoming an expert in this one smallest subfield that you are creating. So in my world, I'm looking at the interactions between proteins and the cells that make blood vessels. And I'm becoming an expert on how these cells come together to make a fully functioning blood vessel. Theoretically, I will be an expert in that field in like two and a half years with my PhD. I don't know what it means in the big scale of things. I will theoretically know the entire process of how this thing works, what happens in a stroke, what happens in cancer, what happens in you name your other disease, um, and what causes uh, various aberrations to occur. 
you have to be willing to put in the hours to do it. And I think some people think like, oh, I did 10 hours of undergrad research in a week. I can do a PhD. You probably can, but you haven't done 70. You have to be interested enough in something to yeah. spend that time day in and day out and like want to gain that knowledge. Two, I, I think like this is where this is, I think, the next part that drives people crazy and it's not expected at all. Um, every lab that I've been in, and I've been in big private universities, I've been in smaller public schools and bigger public schools. Every academic lab is cash drop. There's not just teams and teams of people willing to help you. You know, when the, when like a new undergrad comes to lab and they're like, I want to learn science, it's the grad student that does the mentor. So like in my time at Virginia Tech, I think I've mentored like seven or eight undergrads, two or three grad students and a couple medical students as well. So it's, you know, me teaching them how to do research, it takes up time as well. And that I think is a critical component of you getting a PhD. If you're not able to like teach what you're doing, it becomes a harder hill to climb. How do you feel about being a mentor? I don't really think of myself as a mentor. It's, it's more so like, yep, I know this. I'm here to teach you. Here we go. Is that how you say it too? We're like, I'm a roof. Here we go. <laughs> Straight up. It's like, I'm a roof. You should be uh, paying. You should be taking these notes right now. And let's begin. <laughs> I, I believe that. I can see you doing that. Okay, switching gears a little bit. While you're in the middle of working these 70-hour lab weeks, what on God's green earth made you want to spend more time investing your, your time and emotions into student advocacy? That's so other people don't have to do this, to be honest about it. Um, like, I can handle the 70-hour work week. So would you say you're you're better than other people? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Um, no, I mean... Damn, that would have been the soundbite of the century. Sure. No, I wouldn't say that, but it's, it it goes back to like, do you know what your limitations are? Um, Like, you know, after I'm done working two or three, seven hour work weeks, I shut off and I don't show up, you know, and some people, they just continue doing it over and over again. So it's like, I know my limits. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, I can handle like two or three, seven hour work weeks back to back. But then look, I will be taking a week off and you will not see me. Um, and I'm like confident enough telling people that I've worked this much. You will not see me. Don't bother me. Don't email me. Don't do anything. And I will just shut off. Know your limits. Know how you operate. And know the support systems that you need to succeed. That's where I saw student advocacy coming in. Uh, I think people know what support systems they need, but it was just under-resourced. And that's what I really wanted to fill the gap in and do. Could you talk about more specifically what the areas are that are lacking for grad students? Um, and I know when when I was uh, in a role in undergrad, I learned how different the grad experience is from the undergrad experience, especially because grad students are way more varied in age and just like life situation. Yeah, sure. So I mean, I'll, I'll maybe talk about like two or three. So I think health and wellness is definitely one good proportion of graduate students are going to be 26 plus. So they're, they're off of their parents' health insurance. The school is need to kind of provide some level of health insurance, in my opinion, good affordable health insurance. Uh, many, many, many colleagues of mine are having kids now. So uh, the health insurance needs to cover, um, you know, delivery of child and uh, age one through seven, basically, of the child existing. 
Mental health, I think this is a big national thing. There's just not enough resources put towards mental health right now. That's a thing that's needed. And I think a third that I'll throw in there, a third uh, needs to be a very, very, very good ombudsperson. What is that? So an ombudsperson is like a neutral person. It's basically a peer mediator. It's not even a peer mediator. It's like a mediator between the graduate student and the advisor and department that the graduate student belongs Mm -hmm. in. So this, this person is very critical during times of academic abuse. And I think the person usually comes across as like a neutral person. And I don't think neutrality is the best mindset to be in when an ombudsperson is reached out to, because I think uh, if the ombudsperson is being reached out to, it's usually gone over the wire already. And this individual or groups of individuals need to help the graduate student escape the environment that they're in. And I think the very last resource that's needed is, I don't know, I'm going to say looking for affordable housing in a community to live in in whatever city that they're in. It's not really a resource that I think the school can provide. Maybe they can, I don't know. Um, but that's that's a resource. And I, I don't exactly know how to describe that. Right. With the affordable housing, I know you and others at school were working on a, is bill the right word? I feel like bill's not the right word. The message I was always trying to get across is the community around you has changed and you are not realizing that. So when I started in 2018, and I think this has been like the history of Virginia Tech for a while, this is a very small college town community. Housing here is very affordable. We can pay you a lower stipend and you'll still be fine. Historically, I think they've been right. The problem has been in the past four or five years, rent and everything has just gone up everywhere and stipends have not gone up. And that's where we're reaching a bottleneck of cost of everything is going up, but income is not going up. And we have families and lives to feed and we can't make two things work. You know, in I think a larger city, you can say something like, okay, go get another job. But when you're in Blacksburg. Right. And some of the grad students that I know did try to pick up second jobs, but yeah, would have to be working basically like fast food or like at a library or even having to take an extra job through the school, like working in the cafeteria or something. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, when you, when you have a community of people with, that's like 35% or so international, depending on your visa type, like you can't work an outside job. Right. That's a really good point. Also. Yeah. yeah. Like you cannot work external to Virginia Tech. So if you're struggling as an international student, a third of your community is going to struggle until they graduate. So yeah, how do most people make ends meet to be able to make it through grad school, especially for a PhD program, which is so long? That is the million dollar question. Um, Me personally, I've been able to make it work because, okay, so my very first interaction with a grad student when I was an undergrad, uh, she told me I save up enough money to have one Arby's meal at the end of every month. And that was like her reward. And I was like, so I kind of came in with the thing of, I have to save a good bit pre-grad school. So I don't have like, not to say that crappy of a life, but um, that crappy of a life. Like, I mean, that is fair, especially like something you didn't mention, but I know other people who also like worked on grad student advocacy with you mentioned was food insecurity. Mm-hmm. So like having access to quality, nutritious meals. Mm-hmm. 
uh, is also a, like, it is a, a big deal in quality of life. No, it is. It is. So that's where like, you know, me coming into graduate school, I worked and I just saved a good bit of money to where, you know, I was just like, look, I don't want to go through the hardships that everyone's going through. But again, that took five years between, or really three years between my master's and starting here to like figure out. Mm-hmm. Can you say how much the graduate stipend is? Like, are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm comfortable with that. So it varies per school. Um, at Virginia Tech, it's 21000 over nine months. That's also pre-tax, pre-student fees. So it ends up being like 19000 after you take student fees, a little bit less than that once you factor in taxes. Is that similar to what it's like at other schools? Is it in the like 20000s? No, no, it's lower. Oh, I mean, lower? Virginia Tech, is definitely, Virginia Tech is definitely in the lower round of things. Oh, okay. This is something, I think this is a movement uh, for those paying attention and like graduate that are going to see. You will start to see stipends be a lot more public and the affordability in that city. So I think students coming into school over the next four or five years, if your school and program does not make these things public, don't go to graduate school. Even at Virginia Tech, some programs openly state, we pay you X dollars a year, we cover these things, period. And your funding is guaranteed for a certain number of years. Other programs don't do that at all. And this is all within the same school. And I think the movement you're going to start to see, or it's going to have to happen if graduate schools want to remain competitive, is everyone will have to be open about the support they can give over a certain amount of time. Okay, you want to stop talking serious and go back to being fun? Sure. <laughs> so like, what concert are you going to or a festival, whatever this is? Yeah, so I yesterday was day one of a music festival and it did pour the whole time. Oh, um, really? <laughs> yes, it sucked. I had so many cute outfits planned and then it was 45 and raining and I wore like full hiking gear and like a rain jacket. <laughs> is it, wait, this is like an outdoor festival? Yeah, it's in D.C., um, but the venue banned umbrellas, which is so funny. Why would they ban umbrellas? It's an outdoor festival. Because I guess it could be used as a, a weapon or something, but they were everyone was like, oh my god, it's raining. And they were like, we're not moving the festival, and also you can't bring an umbrella. Day two is today, but it's not raining. It still is cold, but not raining. So after this, I'm like going to go get ready. <laughs> I've never been to a festival before, but to be honest, it makes me feel a little bit old because I just want to like sit down <laughs> Like, I want to go home and then go back. Yeah, I think that's what I've noticed with age is I want to keep on doing less and less things. Like, I want to keep on doing less things weekly, if that makes sense. But if I do something, it'll be like an all out everything. I'm just nonstop for seven days straight. That's a festival. Then you would like a festival. Yes. No, see, I'm the opposite. Like, I would do stuff every day, but I would rather with a concert, for example, I feel like if you see like eight artists back to back, Mm -hmm. It's fun, but it all blurs together into like a crazy thing. Mm. But I would rather go see an artist and everybody there, like love them and have a night that's like just that. What do you think are the biggest skills you learned about working with people in power that were maybe like not what you were intended to learn in the role of student leadership? You have to dumb it down. (laughs) You have to treat like I I think of the remember the office. There is this part where uh Someone tried to wait. Can you hear what's going on outside my apartment? There are people like there's a ladder going up outside my window right now. Too, right now, actually, but <laughs> wait, wait, yeah, really? really? Uh, I'm getting a thing fixed on the roof. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Okay, keep so, going. But, um, in terms of like what I learned the most about dealing with administrators and others, um, there I go back to the scene from The Office and 
someone's explaining something to Michael Scott and he's like, explain it to me like I don't know anything. And then someone says something. It's like about taxes or something. And then they're like, and he does the explanation. And then Michael goes, okay, now explain it to me like I'm five years old. So <laughs> that's what I'm like. Okay, I think we just need to explain it to everyone like they're five years old. And then maybe they'll get it. I think it's always funny and also interesting to see what people think is best for students when they're not a student, which I don't think is poorly intentioned. I think it's actually really well-intentioned, but I think it's always kind of interesting to hear when people are like, this is what the students want. And you're like, actually, (laughs) no, it's not. I'm kind of like, which student did you talk with? I'm always curious about that too, because I feel like um, schools kind of do these like broad sweeping things. Whereas like people just want like food and housing security. Yeah. And then the school's like, did you say we should all have like a university wide day of meditation and we'll give out prayer beads? that are like open to anyone of any religion and you're like wait what (laughs) like that's actually not what we said at all that's kind of where i'm just like how did i say something and it just got no but uh, yeah i'm like who did you talk with that said a day of meditation was what we wanted (laughs) what a hoot What what a crazy time it was we were also really safe though because on zoom you could just go off camera but then when you were on camera you'd have to be like fuck control the face That was definitely my favorite thing about it being a pandemic year is we could be like in a meeting but then like texting all of our friends. Like we did. We openly texted each other. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was so good. Like a sidebar commentary. Oh, I'm going to miss that so much when the world sort of returns to normal. You've reached the voicemail of Camelia. Please hang up and dial again. for listening to this episode of pick up the phone our show would not be possible without the support of our amazing team our executive producer is camelia pastor our audio editor is camelia pastor our graphic designer is camelia pastor our marketing team camelia and pastor sales and analytics camelia pastor and of course this season's intern is camelia pastor